Welcome to the Software and Technology Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado. Ben Taylor, Chief AI Officer at Ziff AI, joins us today to talk about the future of AI, some of the adoption obstacles, and about some of the specific applications that showcase what AI can do for us. How you doing, Ben? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Ziff AI and what you do as Chief AI Officer? Yeah, so my role is to ensure that we stay competitive when it comes to deep learning and different types of AI and machine learning. Uh, so what we do, so what my team does is we do a lot of prototyping, and then once we find uh, potential wins, then we we move that over to engineering and push it into product. Right, right. So Ben, to contextualize this issue a little bit into something that might be a little bit more approachable to other people, can you tell us a little bit about the bachelor and bachelorette? deep learning project you guys worked on? Because I think that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of a funny backstory. Uh, so one of the things we've been working on the last year um, is trying to make deep learning easier. Uh, so we'll take data sets, we'll train models, all turnkey, no network selection, and we'll push them through. And so part of that, there's been a motivation to push a lot of data sets through and find some fun marketing pieces. So the Bachelorette DeepNet actually goes back to, um, before we did that, we built a beauty net, which is a little controversial. And the main reason we did that, and so when I say a beauty net, it looks at someone's face and a man or a woman, it scores them from zero to 10. And the reason we did that is we were responding mm-hmm. to someone else who had done it. And uh, there was a company called, I think they're still around, called beauty.ai. And their first attempt was racist. So it, I, it's, it, didn't, it scored people with darker skin lower, and that made international news. And so that was a year and a half, two years ago. And so we reacted to that, and we got our own data set, and we started doing uh, iterations on this problem. And so we had a, we had a beauty net, which is kind of – there, there's a lot of things that come out of that. Um, and, and I love that example because people say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but that's actually not true when it comes to predicting what LA thinks or what Chicago thinks or what South Korea thinks. Right. There, there are trackable patterns, right? Yeah. But if I want to predict what you think is attractive or what I think is attractive, then yeah, I need a lot of data coming from you or from me. But, um, so with the, the bachelorette, so so real quick, my background coming from HR, we deal a lot with some of the ethics around AI. So you can actually have a racist model that goes into production and, and it impacts people's lives by you know, downgrading a minority applicant on a resume or something like that. And so that's something I've been aware of with that. So with the Bachelorette example, um, it's relatable. People can get it. And so I've actually had people reach out and say, I love that example because I, I can relate to it. I actually get I get what you did. Um, the fact that it's as predictable as it is is maybe a little disturbing on the human side. You know, what's the human doing? Um, so, so all we do with that is we took all the photos from the past contestants and we trained a deep net on the face uh, to predict the rank of how well someone would do. So what kind of things is it is it measuring? Yeah, so the the... The great thing with deep learning is you kind of turn over the feature engineering to the computer 
And so for the beauty example, the first thing people always say when we say we have a beauty net is they say, oh, so it's measuring symmetry. Or they try to relate to known human metrics because uh, plastic surgeons have metrics. But the wonderful thing with deep learning is it moves beyond a human's understanding. Right. So I think plastic surgeons have 60 metrics where the deep net, it's kind of given free reign where it's not limited to 5, 10, 60 metrics. So one of the things we have done is unpacking what it has learned. We have seen it has picked up on some bias biases. So there's a beauty bias. So if I told you people that were more attractive are more likely to make it to do well in the show, you would not be surprised. It's also picked up on an age bias. So this isn't true age, it's perceived age. So if you're perceived to look younger, um, that was better with The Bachelor. And then the sad part, which is already known, is it did pick up on a racial bias. Um, so minorities, the AI is picking up that minorities don't tend to do as well for this particular show, um, which is not, none of that is new news to anyone. They already knew that, um, but it's kind of fun to see that that type of stuff is in the model. But the the scary thing about just pointing a deep net at someone's face and predicting something, there's a lot of things it could be predicting that we don't understand very well. So we did this other example where we showed we could predict uh, genetic haplogroups from a face. So you could be kind of tying into some genetic um, background and have no idea that the deep net picked up on that. It could be picking up on style. You know, it's so it's not just beauty and age and in, in race, there could be a style element as well. But it, it's kind of it's hard to unpack. Right. So how how does something like this? You, I mean, you mentioned how it was kind of a response to someone else's kind of failure at, at trying to do this. But how does something like this get justified to work on? Who who greenlights it? And in, in yeah, so um, we get a lot of value out of some of our marketing. So we've done so we try to hit across the board on different marketing opportunities. So if we had pushed out a deep net that could predict gender, it doesn't really get the same response. Um, one of the other things too is it's always fun to work on something that's a little bit fun. So the so the justification came from the marketing opportunity, but also having a data set that was fun for the employees at Ziff to kind of get excited about. Um, that's good because what happens is it motivates you to work hard on it, invest time, and then we also got some innovation coming out of it. So the the fun thing with a bachelor data set is. It's, I think it's, it's roughly about 300 images. For anyone that does deep learning, that's actually really, really hard to build a model on so few images. So if you, if you said, hey, I have 10 million images, people that do this type of stuff won't have any concern typically about building you a decent model. If you say you have hundreds, that's a huge red flag. So, so one of the motivations for our team was to do R&D cycles on small data sets. Um, so it wasn't a complete waste. We did get a marketing win and then we got some internal research and development from that data set. Right. And I, I mean, it, and it definitely works, right? Like it's something that I'm sure everyone immediately asks about because it's the easiest thing to automatically kind of understand at least what the premise or the goal is. Oh, and I, and I guess real quick too, one of the motivations for me is sometimes when it comes to AI and ethics, we like to demonstrate things to start the conversation. So the fact that we could predict rank from a, an image, hopefully that starts kind of these ethical discussions on what is okay with AI. 
And so whenever we find opportunities to do that, to kind of start the conversation, um, we will. Right. And that, and that's exciting, of course. So I'm curious, how does the adoption of this technology affect the way you guys work on it? Do you see any changes in your approach as this kind of technology becomes more and more accessible? Yeah. Uh, so one of, one of the things that's been happening during the last decade, companies have been, the amount of unstructured data that is stored has been increasing. So the amount of document scans, audio, video, images has just been growing and growing and growing. So there are, there are a lot of companies out there that have insane scale when it comes to the data that they collect. You know, billions of images, hundreds of thousands of hours of audio, billions of documents. There's companies out there collecting this type of unstructured data. And until deep learning came around, it was really hard to unlock the value. So we're seeing a lot of interest now where companies want to figure out how they can unlock the value in their unstructured data. And um, the thing that's very surprising for people, I've told people since the year 2015, there has been an expectation for superhuman abilities. That's not a guarantee. You can't promise that on any data set, but we have lots of examples we can speak to where the computer is beating a human at the same task, whether it's predicting age from a face or um, predicting the success of an ad campaign. Um, there, so there's huge opportunities for deep learning to not just augment the human in the middle, but to offer repla superior replacement on accuracy. So with that said, do you see any obstacles with people being hesitant to adopt this technology just out of fear? Um, so the So we see a few obstacles and Maybe this isn't what you're getting at with the question. So on on the buyer side, we see obstacles where the executives and the people making the decisions, they they still see AI as not being prime time. And a lot of them can reference back to bad examples where they've done it themselves and they've failed internally. And we're kind of the, the opinion that most AI projects fail. The majority do for different reasons. Um, when it comes to society accepting it, we've already seen some um, riots and stuff. So I think, um, well, not full on riots, riots, but in Las Vegas, the casino workers went on strike a couple weeks ago over the fear of automation for bartender positions and stuff like that. And you're going to see more and more of that in the future. Just huge job disruption. Um, you've heard estimates from 7% of the workforce will be replaced or laid off from what they do today to numbers as high as 15%. And I think it's to be determined. Um, but I think the number is going to be much higher than people anticipated. So you're definitely going to see pushback and fear in the market as some of these automation um, opportunities start to take hold. Right. And, and, and with that said, what do you think people in the industry can or should do to try and reassure people that things are going to be okay, that this is just part of the natural progression and evolution of technology? Yeah. Um, so I so I've been accused online of enabling Black Mirror technologies, not with my current job, but with some of the stuff I did with recruiting, where a lot of people feel very uneasy about the computer making a recruiting decision. And some people have pushed back saying they don't think that's fair or, or they just don't like it. And the easiest way to respond to that criticism is to demonstrate the human equivalent. So that was a post. I ran a post um, a couple months ago. I think it was called Racism Under Every Rock. And it was using AI to kind of peel back the curtain and show 
what happens in the human side. Um, so th that's specific to recruiting. It's pretty easy to demonstrate how terrible the human recruiting process is with unconscious bias. Um, when it comes to, that doesn't really make people feel better. It just kind of says, well, if you have to pick one or the other, obviously you're going to pick the one that's better for society. Um, the, I think with, when it comes to executives and management and people that control the dollars, they're always going to like automation. Um, they're always going to react to that positively if they feel like the chance of success is high. When it comes to the line worker that's impacted, of course, they're going to react negatively. There's going to be anxiety around their job being replaced. Um, hopefully, they're reprovisioned internally. They're put into new jobs, new tasks, new training. Um, but you're still going to have some pretty major disruption with self-driving cars, professional drivers, stuff like that. So do you think this is something that, you know, to, to, to kind of ease the, the transition, what, what would be an example you'd bring up of, okay, like, yeah, where this automation might be making us lose some jobs, but we're getting this in return? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that we've seen, if you do speed up a human review process, uh, one of the things you get immediately is you usually get a quality boost. So let's say you don't replace the humans. So before the humans were looking at hundreds or thousands of cases, like a radiologist or something like that, where now the AI is kind of playing like a, a heads up or, you know, hey, you should really focus, focus on these cases. The human is still in the loop, but the quality goes way up. So the humans are doing a better job at reviewing the same, um, the same things because they're not reviewing as much. Um, so that's kind of a transition win uh, for companies that are looking at some pretty big transitions. Then I think there's going to be some internal um, accountability where they they have to look at you know retraining or um, you know investing in their employees to make sure that they're they're not made you know obsolete for, with certain technologies. But th there's a lot of debates about what the right approach is. Um, and I've kind of seen both extremes, almost like the natural selection extreme. We'll see what happens versus um, a livable wage. Everyone gets a livable wage no matter what. So there, there's going to be some big changes in society during the next 10 years as we adapt to this changing reality. Right, right. And yeah, I think I think that's inevitable, right? Because it is such a nuanced and, and complicated issue. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's almost like, like you said, it's almost like equally sided where you can empathize in at least some way with, with each side of the argument. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing is there's no way to stop it. So it's not just the AI rev revolution. The one that's really scary on the side is the AI arms race. So whether or not the U.S. participates, we are already participating there. You have Russia and China that have been very vocal and they've put a lot of money. They've put billions of dollars investing into AI. And Putin has the famous quote saying, whoever rules AI will rule the world. And so there, there's kind of this fear in the future that there's going to be an AI arms race. And Elon Musk has been kind of vocal about it. And some people have said he's been premature. But what you're going to see is there's nothing we can do to stop the adoption of AI and the military military's adoption of AI and so the really it's the conversation, you know, if we can't stop it, how do we how do we steer it? How do we have conversations about it now before it kind of gets ahead of us? Right. Let's 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 talk about what responsibilities come with 
this natural evolution. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about another project I read about, which was how, um, how you guys use deep learning to go about the, the country of origin prediction problem? Yeah. So you, you might put the beauty net in kind of a negative example, like, uh, should this have really been done? If anyone's going to do it, I think we should do it. But the the wonderful thing about the country of origin project is I feel like that celebrates human diversity. Because if I ask you how many races exist in the U.S., I think when it comes to protected classes, I can't remember the exact count, but there's six or seven different races. But the interesting thing with races is it's more of a continuous variable. Uh, so we had a country of origin data set that we were working with, and that was one of the questions we asked. Is it possible to predict country of origin, and can that be used for adverse impact mitigation or to help with bias creeping up? So we trained a neural network on 220 countries, and we, we, we even have countries in there like North Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, countries that you would think would be difficult to obtain data for. So we built a country of origin classifier, and we were, we were really pleased with the accuracy on being able to look at a person's face, a single picture, and predict which country they're from. The thing that was really fun that came out of that, um, a lot of times you look at these neural nets, these, these big black boxes, they predict A or B. But there's a wonderful thing that you get at the very bottom of a neural net, and that's called the embedding layer or the feature set. So right before it makes the decision on this is the country, it has a thousand numbers that represent your face, and those numbers represent core features that will help me distinguish which country you're from. And what we did is we had the neural net organize a map of the world. And I, I don't know if you had a chance to see that or if you saw that shared online, but we had the net organize all 220 countries all over the world on where it thought they belonged. And we, we got some wonderful output. So the computer figured out that Chile should be next to Argentina. And it ended up organizing the continents. So we had an obvious cluster around Latin America. We had Africa. We had the Caribbean. We had uh, the Pacific Islands. We had Asia. And we had white Europe, North Africa, Middle East. But the wonderful thing that kind of popped out of that study is the computer did not know where to put Greenland. So the computer's organizing everything. The computer's kind of admitting, like, man, like, Greenland, it's, it's going to be out here. And when I've presented that at different talks, people always react and they say, well, Greenland's like Iceland. And it's if you look at the map and if you look at the images, it's not. Like Iceland is white. So Iceland's with white Europe. Um, but what came out of that study is, turns out Greenland is unique as a country when it comes to genetics. And they found that out. There's, a, there's an article last year doing DNA studies, actually taking people's blood. They sound, found out that Greenland was kind of this genetic oasis or island where it wasn't inherited from the east, it was inherited from the west. So the closest relatives to the people in Greenland actually come from Asia. They don't come from Europe. Um, and according to our neural net, it had the same conclusion. So the neural network concluded that the closest relatives to Greenland were from Asia. And so that we kid and we say, well, if they had waited a year, we could have told them that looking at faces rather than taking blood samples. Um, so that was a really fun project. In, uh, one of the things that comes with doing these types of projects is you always improve. And so our next iteration of the country of origin, we're expecting our error rate to be cut in half. We, we were already really happy with the first approach. These iterations come from thinking about the data differently and improving the training sets. They don't come from 
a different neural net architecture or something like that. Um, and the same thing happened on our beauty model. We actually went through three iterations uh, where we reacted to the data and we changed the data set. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. I'm glad we got like two different, pretty, pretty opposing uh, uh, uses of AI. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think that that really kind of goes back to what you were saying, where it is a, it is going to be as we keep going and getting closer and closer to it, uh, being more and more and more viable, it, it is a very much, a, it's going to be a split, like right down the middle on how people feel about it, depending on, I guess, how it impacts their lives, right? Yeah. Like, I, we're pretty bullish on AI right now because we see lots of business applications that are ready. Um, I think the transition has been toy problems. So a lot of people see AlphaGo, they see ImageNet, they see some of these problems being solved by AI. And they perceive them as being toy or like a kind of a non-relatable on the business side. But we're seeing lots of examples that are very specific to business, uh, talent assessment, advertising, um, property assessment. So we have a deep net that predicts uh, price of a home. So we have these examples that are, are coming from the business side where they are, they are ready for production. Um, so... I think what you're looking at is a rapid acceleration of AI in the marketplace. Um, and that's really just happened over the last couple of years. Sure. Sure. And, and Ben, can you tell us a little bit about why AI tends to fail? Why the fail rate is so high and, and how that affects the way people in the industry approach it? Yeah. So one of the things we've realized is most AI projects, the majority of them fail if it's the first project. And one of the reasons they fail is the people picking the projects, they actually pick the wrong project. They, they, pick, they pick the wrong problem to work on. And this doesn't just come from the data science teams or the engineering teams. It can even come from management and executives. So one of the important things we tell people when they're getting ready to start with AI is to write a dollar amount next to your project idea. And if you can't assign a dollar amount with some assumptions, then you're probably working on the wrong thing. Um, and then another thing we see is a lot of companies that decide to go into AI, they think they're doing something very special and something very novel. And so there's always a discussion around IP. So if you're a marketing company or if you're in manufacturing and you want to do something with AI, there's always discussions around IP. And what they don't realize is your first attempt is usually a failure. And it, there's, the, there's an iteration cycle. So you're not going to patent your first idea. You, you might patent your sixth or your seventh. Um, and so those have been some of the insights that we've had. And then just kind of best practices with software. How do you how do you fail quickly before committing to a big AI project? Is there a way to get buy-in from the stakeholders? Is there a way to do something very rough and quick that maybe doesn't satisfy the academic side of things, but it's, you know, you're very quickly getting to doability. And then I, I think the last point would be to leverage software vendors. So I've done this before where I'll reach out to a software vendor that will essentially do the analysis for free because they want the business. And then I have the opportunity to decide, is it worth me using them as a vendor or am I going to build it internally? So I think there's lots of opportunities for companies to do that. Leverage outside vendor relationships and make them do a lot of the legwork, um, even if you don't have an intention to buy because they're willing to do that work. That's Well, that's great. And, and how far away do you think we are from, or are we there now, I guess could also be the question, to getting to a point where we're, we're getting immediate results from AI, right? We're, we're, we're using it instinctively and, and, and without that hesitation that it will probably fail. 
Yeah, so I, I think we're we're kind of there now. So if you look at these big companies like Data Robot and H2O, they've they've put so much time, expertise, and money and talent into their turnkey AI products that it would be almost impossible for you to beat them on prediction accuracy. So if you build it yourself, you'll come up with something pretty good, but you're not going to beat them. And then we feel the same thing with some of the stuff we've done with deep learning. These companies don't have the resources um, to kind of come up with AI that competes at the level. So I think what you see is you see this aggregation. You see private, or you, you see these companies out there that are offering analytics as a service, and their technology stacks are getting so deep and so sophisticated that more and more you're going to see, you'll still have companies that do it themselves, but they're going to be very custom applications. If you need to build a churn, like a classifier regressor from structured data like Excel, CSV, or from images, audio, and video, you'll find even today that you won't be competitive um, when it comes to prediction accuracy if compared to some of the vendors out there in the market. Right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. I, I appreciate your time immensely, and, and hopefully we get to talk to you again soon. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, happy to do. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to articles, podcasts, and video content for your favorite industries. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado. Have a good day.